Hello, and welcome to PDA, Neurodivergence, and the Perpetually Determined Advocate. I am your Perpetually Determined Advocate, Cassandra. This is a bi-weekly podcast dedicated to raising awareness and acceptance of PDA, or Pathological Demand Avoidance, which is a lesser-known part of the autism spectrum. My hope for this podcast is to provide a place of learning and growth, as well as a platform for PDAers, professionals, parents, family members, and others to speak out on this condition, as well as providing resources for those who want to learn more. If you or someone you know would like to come on and use this platform to tell their story, please contact me at perpetuallydeterminedadvocate at gmail.com. Now, let's launch into this episode's topic. I do believe I finally have us back on schedule. Um, I know that technically bi-weekly had me releasing last week, but it is a bit difficult to record podcast episodes whenever um, I have three people running about my house, especially when one of them is my pda So I am back to this weekend... The kids are with their dad, so I find it a lot easier to record whenever the house is empty and quiet. So that should have us back on schedule for bi-weekly recordings and releases. Uh, Sorry about that. So we just finished celebrating Thanksgiving here in the U.S., and I thought a lot about other PDA parents that day. While I can say I hope you all had a safe and happy holiday, the reality is there were probably a few hiccups, meltdowns, followed by some of that oh-so-irritating, unsolicited advice from family or friends. I don't mean to be cruel. I know that sometimes people are genuinely well-meaning with their input, but I think we can all agree that it can get a bit daunting to listen to someone else explain how they would handle parenting in your situation, especially when they have never experienced the intricacies of parenting a pda It is a situation that requires a lot of love, patience, flexibility, and dedication to adapting to the changes of your child's needs and their anxiety. And things like hard limits clear boundaries, establishing who's in charge, or the use of physical punishment are not going to achieve any sort of progress. We all know of this, but explaining it to others is near impossible at times. And since this is the time of year when many of us see friends and family more often than others, I thought this would be a good topic to discuss. We all run the risk of getting the advice, the looks, and the raised eyebrows from somewhere over the next few weeks. I can understand that sometimes people are uninformed. They may not know about or understand PDA, and therefore, they're just coming from a plan A parenting position. Collaborative parenting with low demands can look like you're giving in to your child and letting them run things. And looking at this from my quiet room when it's not happening and my kids are at their dad's house makes it easier for me to be more understanding of those giving these tips and bits of advice. However, 
when my son is in the midst of a meltdown and I'm trying to navigate that in a way that keeps him safe and someone feels the need to interject afterward to give me a lesson on parenting or worse, tries to do it while everything is coming undone, it's just a little bit harder. I know that you parents listening can relate, right? Even neurotypical parents get this at times, but those of us parenting differently wired kiddos get it far more often. The ones that get it that get to me the most, I think, are the times when he has a meltdown at a store or in public somewhere. That's when people make quick judgments and sometimes comments that can be really biting and cruel. I can lose my cool really quickly on that because my son internalizes the things that people say about him, and so that comment can circulate and destroy him later, and I will not stand by and let someone do that to my son. I try to live by kindness, but that's one of those times I am not so kind. Protecting my children is a fight that I take very seriously. Still... Trying to calmly explain PDA to every stranger is unrealistic. The awareness cards that the PDA society sells are really helpful, but that's assuming that the person you hand it to actually reads it. For those of you who are like me, um, and you know all too well um, that sometimes people really do want to learn, um, how do you explain PDA so that people stop assuming your child is manipulating you, right? So it reminds me of Dr. Ross Green's book, The Explosive Child. There's a quote that says, children do well if they can, or something very close to that, right? It might be kids do well if they can. Either way, it's they do well if they can. And that's what I try to express when I break this down for people. The other thing is a quote from a parenting blog called Peace I Give, a peaceful parenting blog. I saw something um, written just recently, actually, that really it, it resonated with me. And it was reminder that children are not manipulating us when they repeatedly do things we ask them not to. And we are not being permissive or neglectful when we seek to connect with our kids and to get to the heart of an issue rather than demanding obedience. And I've found that, like, the blog post about seeing your child's acts of misbehaving as a tool of communication, extremely enlightening. It made me think of something that I hadn't really considered before. As parents of neurodivergent kids, we learn to interpret and read certain behaviors in our children, and even to communicate in nonverbal ways and pick up their nonverbal forms of communication as well. And I don't just mean people who have nonverbal children. I mean, even my son, who is verbal, there are things that he does that I will understand and I will see as a flag or an issue that other people wouldn't. He, it's not something he doesn't always have to verbalize what's happening. And that's something that um, parents of neurodivergent kids really we've learned how to do that. Right. Um, we learn to see things that others who aren't trained the way that we've trained ourselves would miss completely. 
you know, and it doesn't mean that we are somehow weak or errant parents because we work within these bounds and, and we adapt to our children. It means that we are actually in tune with our children and know how to parent them best and that we can meet them where they are instead of expecting them to come to us. Anxiety makes your brain a labyrinth of fear and confusion. And anxiety is such a huge part of PDA. Genuinely. I mean, as far as anxiety goes, trust me, I know I I may not have PDA, but I do have generalized anxiety disorder, which I'm, you know, medicated for. So I know what that monster is like when it attacks. And I think that helps me to understand my son a bit better. But I also think that's another one of the reasons that those on the outside struggle to understand. If you have never lived with high anxiety and what it does to you mentally and physically, you cannot fully grasp that feeling, that overwhelming sensation that comes with it. The most important thing for me to come to terms with in all of this and trying to explain it and and get through to people is the fact that some people, no matter how many times you try to explain it, will never accept what you're saying. It sucks, but it's the true reality, right? They will continually see this as a power play. They will think that your child is just running circles around you and that you're just letting it happen. Those people are practicing willful ignorance, and I am not one who tolerates willful ignorance well. Anyone who I have explained something to who still continues to remain entrenched in their own perspective and refuses to open their brain and learn something new is just a lost cause for me. I mean, I don't know how to handle it. And so in the situation with trying to explain PDA to those who refuse to grasp it, like it is an infuriating balance and a massive hurdle for me. And one I'm still really trying to master. Um, But it's It's a reality for us parents of neurodivergent kids, right? It requires the use of the old adage, do no harm, but take no, you know the rest, right? Um, I usually respond with a quick, thanks, but that won't work, or I've got this, I've had a bit more practice, for those giving me the speech after the fact, right? Um, I... I will usually at that point, because I'm more calm and it's, you know, it's not in the midst of a meltdown. At that point, I usually go with, I have explained this to you before, but that won't work based on his medical diagnosis and how his brain is wired. I'm always really clear and use terms like medical diagnosis, neurodivergence, um, I tell them about the things that the psychologist or the psychiatrist has stated having the legitimacy in there backing up what I've said countless times makes it harder for them to continue arguing, right? Because, you know, I'm just the schmuck letting their kid walk all over them. But a person with a few extra letters after their name saying the same thing will usually get a different response from someone. Um, Either that or they just kind of roll their eyes and, uh, 
you know, write the doctor off as a quack, in which case, you know, this is a person that no matter how many times you explain it, you're not getting through to them, right? Of course, those are the same people that I have to have that conversation with over and over again. So we know with them, it's not going to stick. They're usually the ones that are the most verbal about it, too, which makes it, you know, even more agitating because then you have to try to be the bigger person and you're just trying desperately to hold on to it. Um, Because believe me, they are the ones that I want to start screaming at. But I do my best to keep my composure and then I'll scream at the air about it later. It's my catharsis, and I'm sure there have been times when I've looked like an absolute wild woman driving down the road and screaming in my car, (laughs) but it brings me back to my peace, so I really don't care what I look like. It's something I can do that helps me and hurts no one else, and so why not, right? Now, there are on occasion... People who genuinely want to understand, though, right? I have some of those people in my life, and I love them deeply. They ask questions not to correct or to criticize, but to learn and understand. Those people are the best. So when talking to people who are coming from this place, I kind of tend to word vomit, (laughs) I give them as much information as I can about what I've read and watched and absorbed on the particular topic they're asking me about. Um, For those of you who listened to the books episode, um, you know, that's a pretty big list. And honestly, that's not even that doesn't even include everything. Um, Episodes are about 30 minutes long at max. And so I kind of had to condense it. I genuinely just talked about the books, but that's not all that I've read. Um, I've mentioned before that I'm a historian by trade, so research is my forte. I dove straight into the literature whenever I was trying to create my own understanding, and both I looked at things from written by PDAers and also by professionals. I read books, I read articles, I read blogs and websites, watched YouTube videos by, you know, the PDA Society and by PDAers. I read social media posts from PDAers and other neurodivergent folks. Um, It was a process I know well, right? And I followed it to learn more about this diagnosis so that I could help educate myself and others about the world from my son's point of view. Because understanding is the key to building that bridge. Until someone cares enough to understand, they will always be on the other side of the river seeing a smaller and unclear picture. Understanding will bring them closer to it so they can see the reality. So digression aside, when people ask me who are genuinely seeking understanding, I usually start with the clinical terminology, right? It is pathological demand avoidance. Pathological meaning it's compulsive. He cannot control this any more than someone with, say, obsessive compulsive disorder can and relating it to more 
widely understood and accepted conditions helps people start seeing things more clearly. Relating it to something like OCD is something they can, there's, that's a string they can grab on. That's something they can see to bring themselves closer. Next, I generally rather uh, dive into the anxiety. I explain that even small everyday demands can send him straight to fight, flight, or freeze. I talk about how he's tried to hurt himself over going to the grocery store. And I also stress the fact that he resists his own demands, too. That part usually surprises people, even the irritatingly ignorant ones. Um, Generally, especially them, right? Um, When they think that this is just an unruly child who wants to push their parents around, finding out that he also pushes himself around, essentially, makes them miss a step. What, you mean he fights with himself? You mean he can't even do the things he wants to do? It's like, no, right? And that's kind of sends their eyes wide and, and makes them kind of stop for a second. Because when you talk about demands, most people only consider external, right? They don't think about the fact that we put demands on ourselves, that there are internal demands. And they don't always associate the idea of internal demands when you're talking about these things. And I've seen my son tense up and panic when trying to decide on a snack or what direction to take on a video game or whether he wants to keep doing what he's doing or stop. Um, I've heard I'm hungry, but I can't eat. Right? I also mentioned the thing that he said to me once that I will always remember. He was about six years old at the time. And it was after he had um, a meltdown over, I believe, brushing his teeth, but I, I can't remember. It was, it was over a smaller demand. And we were talking about things afterward. And, you know, he, because he, he'll always come up, I'm sorry. You know, he apologizes. Um, he apologizes profusely. He, you know, like I said, he internalizes the things that he does and the thing, the way that people react to them. Um, and, you know, it's heartbreaking at times. But this little bitty six-year-old comes up to me and he tells me when we're having this conversation that his body tells him to do one thing, but his brain tells him to do something else and he can't stop it. Now, that was so extremely insightful for a six-year-old, but I've always felt that it perfectly sums up what he goes through. The idea that you can somehow override your own brain and comply with what society says is appropriate is such a ridiculous expectation, right? And it's, it's at the root of better understanding PDA and PDAers, Truly understanding that PDAers are sometimes at war with their own brains is vital. Understanding that kids do well if they can is another. These kids of ours try really hard when they can. But when they can't, they literally can't. It's not a won't. It is a can't. They do not have it in them. They are up against a brick wall with no tools to go over it. 
and it is up to the people with them at the time to help them find a way to stop and, you know, work around. That is the only way you get through to someone in that situation is you give them a chance to stop and find their way past that moment. You can't force it. You just can't. And if you try to force it, you're going to violate their trust and you're not going to be able to make any progress with that person. You're going to have to repair that trust before you're going to be able to improve that relationship. So continuously forcing someone, you might think, oh, well, if I just push hard enough, I get them to do this. And I've heard that before. I've heard that from people. Like if I just tell him this, then he just he stops and does something else. I'm like, you're he's he's like learned that he has to mask with you then and he's learned that you don't accept him for who he is you've broken his trust and you're never going to have anything more than maybe a superficial relationship with this guy um that's just how it is uh until you can earn back his trust you're he's gonna mask with you you're never gonna see who he truly is he only you know he because people ask, too, like his teachers will say, oh, well, we don't see that here. It's like, well, he knows at home that if he has a meltdown, he will still be loved and accepted. He won't be judged. He won't be, you know, no one's going to throw him out. No matter how many times his brain tries to tell him that he's not worth anything, because it does tell him some really nasty things. And he's told us that, too. He knows at home that he is loved. He knows that he's accepted. He knows it's a safe space. And that's why he knows that he doesn't have to mask. That's why you see more meltdowns in the home. It's not because there's something wrong with your parenting. It's not because there's anything wrong with you. It is because that child feels safe enough in that environment to be who they really are. And whenever they get to the point of having a meltdown, they know that if they have that meltdown in this environment, that's okay. That that's not going to be the end-all, be-all. That they're not in danger if they have a meltdown here. And I think that's something that's really helped become a comfort to me as well. Is knowing that it's not somehow that, you know, he has these reactions at home because he, you know, is angry with me. Or because he does, you know, he, he has these um, you know, negative emotions towards me or towards the house or towards his family. It's because he knows he's safe enough to be real. Plus, from masking all day at school, he's exhausted by the time he gets home. So, of course, he's not going to have the energy to do anything else, right? He's not going to have the energy to, to fight anymore. He's worn out. And this child will fall asleep from the time I pick him up to I go and pick his older brother up, he'll fall asleep in that distance because, I mean, he really just is absolutely exhausted. And, I mean, that's that's the thing, right? These kids deserve a space where they can be completely accepted and understood and not judged or condemned. They deserve to be able to live without that exhaustion, but until we reach the point of better understanding and acceptance, our kids are still going to have to mask. And that's the unfortunate side of this. So to the rest of you who will be fielding this minefield of family get-togethers and over-explaining yourself over the next few weeks, my heart is with you. I will be in the same boat. Hang in there and know that I'm thinking about you. 
feel free to reach out to me anytime because having a person who can relate is vital. And I am happy to be that person for others because I know how important community is. As always, you can email me with any questions, comments, constructive criticism, or concerns at perpetuallydeterminedadvocate at gmail.com. You can also find the podcast on social media. Just search PDA Neurodivergence and the Perpetually Determined Advocate on Facebook or Instagram. And until next time, remember, in a world where you can be anything, be kind.